When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Men, Women, and Children, starring Adam Sandler and Jennifer Garner, looks at our world through the lens of five interconnected families in a small town. The Skeleton Twins brings two estranged twins, played by Bill Hader and Kristen Wiig, back together after 10 years of being apart. Both movies are now playing on demand. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. And this week on the show, Allison and I get into our red carpet gear and get ready to hand out some trophies as part of our annual year-end tradition, the Sfuvi Awards. Trophies not included. And red carpet gear not included. But whatever, it's still a glamorous and glitzy affair in our hearts. And I've been drinking since noon. Uh, what else is new? As we salute some <laughs> Shut highs. Shut up! And lows from the year in movies. As well as talking about our favorite streaming discoveries. In lieu of our usual Q shot section, we'll be bringing you our top 10 lists, uh, as well as, you know, all of our, our thoughts on these different categories on the year in movies. Uh, but first up is Opening Break, a segment we could do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, which we spotlight a few notable films that are new on demand on cable. Matt, what are your picks? All right. First up, a movie that I've been looking forward to, haven't had a chance to catch yet, so it's, it's a perfect VOD title. It is called Revenge of the Green Dragons. It's directed by Andrew Lau and Andrew Liu, and it's available now on VOD. I'll read you the, uh, the official description of the movie here. It says, In the vein of crime classics like Mean Streets and Infernal Affairs, Revenge of the Green Dragons follows two immigrant brothers, Sonny, played by Justin Chan, and Stephen, played by Kevin Wu, who survived the impoverished despair of New York in the 1980s by joining the Chinatown gang The Green Dragons. The brothers quickly rise up the ranks, drawing unwanted attention of hard-boiled city cops. After an ill-fated love affair pits Sonny against his own brother, he sets out for revenge on the very gang who made him who he is. From acclaimed director Andrew Lau and Andrew Liu and legendary executive producer Martin Scorsese comes a brilliant mix between a Hong Kong action film and a New York City crime thriller portraying the never-before-told true story of the Green Dragons. And as I mentioned there, the film uh, is sort of a, I guess, a, a reunion-ish between Lau and Martin Scorsese, who is the executive producer on the, on the film. Scorsese was the director of The Departed, which is based on, on Andrew Lau's Infernal Affairs. A fisherman in China. He'll never be anything but a fisherman in China. But here, he has hope. He can dream of something better. These families came to America in different and harrowing conditions. This place symbolizes what they all managed to build. They didn't ask what this country could do for them, but what they could do to make this 
The greatest home of freedom in history. So, sort of almost like returning the favor. Like, I adapted your movie and now I will put my name on your movie to give it maybe a little extra weight and attention. It is apparently based on a New Yorker article about this real-life gang and, and sort of Asian-American gangs in 80s and 90s New York City. Have you seen it, Allison? I have not. You know, I got a lot of, you know, emails about it, you know, press emails, publicity emails. And every time I would get one and go, this sounds really interesting. I really want to see this. And it just... I have no excuse. It just slipped under the radar for me. But it's one that I'm really looking forward to. Ch- I mean, just the combination... I mean, Hong Kong action film plus New York City crime film equals M- Matt Likes. <laughs> I mean, that really sounds like it's really in my wheelhouse. So I can't wait to check this one out. That is Revenge of the Green Dragons. And it's available now on VOD. Uh, our next pick, one that I'm sort of not quite as excited for, but m- morbid curiosity and a sense of auteurist completism means I'm going to have to see it at some point. Can you guess, based on th- that alone, what movie it is? Autourist completism and morbid curiosity? No. Tell me. It's a director that I know very well, and uh, his name is Kevin Smith, and the film is called Tusk, and it uh, is available now on VOD. And uh, the description here from uh, the VOD website is, From the twisted mind of writer-director Kevin Smith, Tusk is a tale about a podcaster who goes missing while interviewing a mysterious seafarer. And I know a little bit more about what happens from there, but we won't spoil it. Allison, did you see Tusk? I did, and I actually like Tusk. You did like Tusk. Oh, good. I will say, for reasons that I think are almost (laughs) accidental on Kevin Smith's part, Uh I feel like he is accidentally made a movie that feels very autobiographical and interesting uh-huh. in that it is about a guy who is like a nerdy comedy guy who becomes famous online right and then on this podcast and then kind of loses all sense of empathy and gets this like bloated sense of self-worth and is defensive and thin-skinned oh i and see like, and, and you don't think kevin smith realized he was he making a movie not, about himself you asked I, him about this I, I literally asked him about this and he was like oh no that's not how i f-. that was all like uh justin's justin long's like input but that he did not but i think that it is if you look at Deep it down inside as, like this kind of introspective personal film right it's really interesting interesting all right but, well i'm glad to hear that because you know as a guy who's seen all of his movies and has a long uh, relationship. Complicated relationship. A complicated Very relationship complicated. with Kevin Smith's films. You know, it's one I absolutely will have to see at some point and uh, was sort of dreading it, but I'm glad to hear you liked it. That's great. So maybe I will enjoy it as well. I, and, and the way you're describing it sounds very interesting as well. So that is Tusk, and it's available now on VOD. And finally, starting on VOD on December 23rd, my birthday, and I can't think of a better way to spend my birthday than watching the remake of Left behind (laughs) after millions of people mysteriously disappear a pilot played by allison nicholas cage nicholas cage must protect the remaining passengers on his flight trapped at thirty thousand feet he must find a way to survive the chaos and also have sex with the declaration of independence Made that I don't remember part. that part. No, I made that. I, I, I haven't seen part this movie, in. but it sounds like a surprising. I threw that part in. I threw that part in. Maybe that's not from the original text. Perhaps not. Uh, but uh, what I want you to do, if you, I mean, I, I'm guessing a lot of listeners have heard about this. They remade Left Behind. It's based on the sort of the apocalyptic Christian book Best-selling. series. Best-selling They're book like, series. They are. They have a huge yeah, following. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. There was, I think, a dozen books, something like that. They made a couple of movies that adapted them. Kirk Cameron was the star of that series. The series, I think, petered out after like three films. They didn't get through the whole story, as, as I recall. 
They've rebooted it with a little bit of a bigger budget, a little bit of a bigger name cast, and the star this time was Nicolas Cage. And so that alone, uh, that, that hooks me right there. And I, what I want you to do, though, is go online, type in, like, left behind poster, and find the poster for this movie and look at Nicolas Cage's face. And then just imagine, like... The ba- Andy Samberg's, I already Andy Samberg's like impression of Nicolas Cage and that voice coming out of is like, what am I doing on this poster? Why is everybody left behind? <laughs> this is crazy. It it's just like it's it, it's so self parody at this point. It's kind of amazing. Well, I think also this movie was marketed outwardly as like an action type. Yes, they've movie. sort of downplayed the. Yeah, but the... like in their own internal marketing, like on the Facebook page, okay. it was very much like here is a tool to convert your non-believer friends. Oh, really? They actually had an ad that had a quote. Oh, I remember from, this. From You've... Satan. Yes. <laughs> being like, do not take unbelievers to see this movie. <laughs> non-believers to see this movie. Um, it burns. Thought, yeah, it burns. I thought it was like it was such an interesting contrast. Yeah. yeah. I didn't realize that. I guess Satan would be a quote whore, really. What's more satanic than being right? a quote whore for a movie? He's like, put whatever quote you want on there. Yeah, just I'm uh, Satan. Uh, put my name on it. Yeah. I don't care. <laughs> what do you want me to say? It's a laugh riot? Sure, why not? I don't care. I'm <laughs> Satan. All right. Well, that's Left Behind, the new version of Left Behind, the 2014 version. And that's going to be available on VOD starting on December 23rd. From the office of Matt Singer's apartment, it's the third annual Spooby Awards. And now, please welcome your hosts, Matt Singer and Allison Wilmore. It is such a thank pleasure. Thank you, thank you, guys. To be back. Oh, here. Yeah. so nice. In the room that we're in every that, two weeks. That feels anyway. good. It yeah. doesn't matter that it's canned at all. It feels great. It does. I'm feel soaking good. that in. You guys are <laughs> terrific. Terrific. Well, we made it, Allison. We 2014. Did. It's in. It's in the books. It's it's, a, it's done. It's a wrap. It's done with and over. All we do now is just skate on home. That's right. That's right. And this is the way we like to wrap it up. This actually, it's the third annual, but it dates back to our old podcast, something basically we used to do on the old podcast uh, that we like to do. Instead of giving out the best actor or best actress, you know, we like to give out our own particular awards. And we have a couple of categories we do every year, and we have a couple of, we try to mix in some new ones each year, too. So we'll have all of your favorites, and we have some brand new categories for 2014 as well. And I think we always start with these two awards. So let's get right to it. The first awards of the night, the We Didn't Get It Award, followed immediately by the They Didn't Get It Award. And the We Didn't Get It Award is pretty self-explanatory. It's a movie that everyone else on the planet loved, but we didn't get it. Uh, Or maybe I and then Allison's (laughs) personal didn't get it. It doesn't have to be shared. We each have our own pick here. But it's a movie that is widely, widely acclaimed, maybe widely beloved by audiences, but left us scratching our heads. Allison? Yes. Who is the winner of the 2014 We Didn't Get It Award? Well, I'm going to give this award to uh, a film that was got a lot of critical acclaim. I don't think I can claim it as a audience pleaser since very few people actually got a chance to see it. Okay. It's such a small relief. 
release, but it is Goodbye to Language, uh, Godard's latest film, a venture into 3D. Yes. About, as far as it's possible to say the film is about anything, it's about a man and a woman talking about things, walking around naked. There's a dog. It's Godard's dog. There are discussions of the Holocaust and colonialism Mm -hmm. and whether cinema is a savior or a destroyer. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's basically a documentary about my life is it, what you're saying it is really yeah. it was eerie and i think that's why i felt so uncomfortable watching it um it is uh you know philistine that i am in general i found late godard meaning like the last few decades of godard just generally a little like difficult to connect to in any way but this film i think unlike his other ones this film got like general larger acclaim this was a movie that people were saying is more accessible than a lot of his more recent work. Um, but I still found it just very opaque. You know, it does have some gen- genuinely interesting use of 3D. This film is uh, still in theaters. And I think unless you have a 3D TV and it is released in 3D, there's no point in watching it at home. Right. Like that is maybe one of the major experiences of the film. And the part that is very cool is that it, it does some things with 3D that I have never seen before. But I do find that people's praise of it and also people's kind of confident statements about what it is about, of which people very few people agree, but many people are willing to tell you Everyone what it knows is. what it's about, but exactly. no one agrees on it. Exactly. Yeah. Is I think part of what I find very alienating mm-hmm. about the praise that the film has gotten is just that it's hard when everyone is saying, like, well, obviously this is a film about experience of watching, or this is a film about, uh, you know, like movies and the history of movies or whatever. And we're just like... It leaves me wondering, like, maybe it's not, maybe it's just a giant YouTube video (laughs) of Godard's dog. Um, But I, you know, I, I've really enjoyed reading about this movie. I've also found it like completely alienating Mm -hmm. reading about this movie and having seen it. That could be a movie award next year. Is the movie (laughs) I least enjoyed watching that I most enjoyed reading Reading about about, or discussing or yeah. But yes, this absolutely earned my we didn't get it award for mm. the year i really did not yeah. get it il n'a pas pu faire de nous les humbles qui ça ou pas su ou pas voulu alors il a fait de nous des humiliés qui ça dieu okay that would earn my We Didn't Watch It award because that was that's right up in the list of you know of the stuff that I didn't get a chance to see. That's really one of the two movies that I most regret not getting a chance to see before well, and the end also, of the year. And it like, also, unlike so many other movies right. in you the year, you couldn't get a screener, you couldn't, you couldn't watch it online. It, it wouldn't be the same experience, which right. is something that is kind of worth calling out into itself is to be like, how many movies can you say if you didn't go and see it in the theater the way it was meant to be seen, you, you didn't, didn't get see to it. see it. That's a good point. Yeah, and, and I did try to go see it uh, like as, as the year was winding down and I had my, you know, it was on my list of movies to catch up with. And I looked to try to go see it in a theater and it was playing at one theater in the city at like 1030 in the morning uh-huh. on a weekdays. And I'm, I just, I couldn't, just couldn't, make, couldn't make it. So uh, hopefully I will get a chance to see it at some point. And perhaps I'll be able to tell you, no, Allison, it's very clearly about the history of colonialism in Africa. Africa, yes. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. But uh, until then, I will remain a We Didn't See It Award for me. My We Didn't Get It Award is for a movie that was probably a little more widely seen than Goodbye to Language and certainly even more critically acclaimed, I think. 
Uh, and it's a movie that I liked mildly. It's, this is not a movie that I disliked. It's just a movie that I just didn't I didn't get it. I did not get the the sort of widespread acclaim. I didn't get the mass of the massive amounts of, of praise it got. And that is the Babadook, which is directed by Jennifer Kent. And you can actually rent at home right now. Uh, on Amazon and iTunes. And again, it's not that I didn't like the movie. I liked it. I just didn't love it the way a lot of people seem to. And I, I, for me, the thing was, I didn't really find it scary. And I guess I'm sort of like missing what makes it so scary. You know, if you type in to Google the Babadook and, you know, like scariest movie ever, you'll get all these articles. The Hollywood Reporter wrote a piece saying it may be the scariest film of the year. Uh, the British film magazine Empire had a piece that was like the Babadook, colon, scariest movie of the year? No less than William Friedkin, the director of The Exorcist, <laughs> a movie that has a legit claim to the title of the scariest movie ever. He tweeted in support of the film, Psycho, Alien, Diabolique, and now The Babadook. I've never seen a more terrifying film. It will scare the hell out of you as it did me. That's what he tweeted. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news for William Friedkin, but The Babadook did not scare the hell out of me. It didn't scare the heck out of me. It didn't scare anything out of me. Everything within me remained inside of me relatively unscared. Now, I mean, there's no question that it's a well-made, it's an intelligent film, it's stylish. I think it's a really good debut. I think Jennifer Kent is a talented director. I'm really interested to see what she does next. But again, I just, I don't know. I didn't find the movie that scary. To me, it was just a very interesting character study of these two messed up people. This mother played by S.C. Davis, and her son, played by Noah Wiseman. Now, the father and husband in the scenario died the night the son was born, driving the mother to the hospital. And without him, the son has kind of grown into this little ball of psychological trauma, and the mother is not doing all that much better herself. And they're both kind of scra barely scraping by, and one night the mother reads the boy a bedtime story from this book that's bizarre and strange she doesn't even know how it got in the house it's just it seems to magically appear and the book is called mr babadook and as she's reading it she realizes that the book is terrifying and it's about how this creature will appear and it'll haunt you and once you once he once you like say his name or once you read the book that's it you can't get rid of him right and the problem at least for me uh, at least if you want to read the babadook as a horror film which i tried to do is that the babadook it always feels like an idea in the movie. It never feels like a real creature in this house, you know? And I feel like a, a horror movie, you know, I want a balance. I want, like, the visceral scares. I want the supernatural elements, whatever it is. And then I also want that metaphorical, allegorical subtext, whatever it is, those ideas. And I felt the Babadook, like, the balance kind of leaned too heavily toward the metaphor, toward the allegory side. Did you get this? On the shelf. If it's in a word or it's in a look, you can't get rid of the Babadook. <laughs> a rumbling sound, then three sharp knocks. That's when you'll know he's around. You'll see him if you look. Ba -ba -ba -duk -duk -duk. This is what he wears on top. He's funny, don't you think? See him in your room at night. <gasps> Mom, does it hurt the boy? Mom, does it live under the bed? Mom? Mommy! To me, watching Mommy. it, it seemed pretty clear right from the start that there really was no Babadook. That it's what we're seeing is like this manifestation or this visualization of this 
these characters deteriorating mental state, right? Which is fine. And for that, it's done very well. But I just didn't, I didn't feel like a lot of menace. I didn't feel like a lot of fear. I, it didn't, it didn't connect with me on that level. I'm sure I'm going to get angry. Even, like I have a hard time imagining we're going to get angry Godard emails, but I know. I, oh, I even think that, I you mean, think so? I think that if I went online and said the exact same thing, I just you'd said get a, you'd get that, attacked. That, well, we'll or see that I would get a lot of people talking. Send down us your hate mail folks. Yeah. Let's see who wins. But yeah, I, I have a feeling I'll get people. Well, I don't know. I will d- say, d- I will say know, about, me. yeah, I yes. mean, I totally take your point on this. I don't think it is. I do not think it is anywhere near this. Well, I mean, maybe this wasn't a great year for horror movies like, right. in general, but, but scariest, that it could be the scariest movie of the year without being all that scary. But I, and I think saying. that's not a great way to position it because I think it sets it up for being it's like a spooky movie at best right like it's yeah. got like it's about like this thing that you barely ever see right that, like creeps around the house but I right. did I did think that the thing that makes makes me like it so much is that I feel like it runs into this it, it kind of runs full force into the idea of like maternal inadequacy where mm-hmm. that like the idea that you might not like your kid that much right that's that you, sort of you where know, the or that like your own from. That your own depression and right. that your own issues will overwhelm so overwhelm your basic maternal instincts. And I give the movie some credit because the kid in this scenario is kind of more of a monster than the Babadook is, in the but beginning. Like also, you only ever see him kind of through her subjective sure, experience. But he seem he comes across as so obnoxious and annoying right, and that so you really smothering and right, like, yeah, and that you, you want to also yeah you kind like, of also yeah. hate him too. And I, I yeah, that's all effectively. I think what I'm what to me it felt like was almost like. This is almost more of like a short film. It could be like a perfect twenty-minute short film, and I just thought as an as a ninety-minute sort of like descent into a nightmare, it just didn't really get there for me. And I I, I have a feeling that what I'm going to hear from listeners is that you know, well, you saw it too late, your expectations were too high, and you were expecting a horror movie, and that's not what it is. And and maybe to some extent that's true. I don't know. I can't really prove one way or the the other. I I will say. I had high expectations for a lot of the movies on my top 10 list this year and they're still on there and and the Babadook is not so I don't know. I can all I can say is I think it's a well-made debut film and I just didn't leave it the slightest bit scared. I slept well that night. I d- haven't really had like a lot of moments where I've, you know, like it's haunted me in any kind of way. It just sort of came and went from from my life and I I just I didn't get it. That's really what it boils down to. So that's that's my pick, The Babadook. And you can rent it on Amazon and iTunes and then tell me how wrong I am. Shall we move on, Allison, to the next award? The They Didn't Get It Award. This is the award we give each year for the film that we enjoyed, that the other critics, the masses, however we want to define it, just didn't react. It either became the movie was a flop or perhaps it got bad reviews. But we loved this movie and felt it got a raw deal and want to hold it up and give it give it a little bit of a push that it, it deserved and never received. Allison, what is your winner of the 2014 They Didn't Get It Award? I am going to give this award to Get On Up, which wasn't... Ah. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was, it was disliked so much as just ignored. It kind of came and went. Yeah. I think a lot of people looked at it and were like, uh, like a, a biopic from the director of The Help. Yes. Like, what part of that sounds appealing to me? And I think it really ignores the fact that this is certainly the most interesting biopic of the year in terms of like being experimental in terms of like pushing, I think like in terms of formally experimental in terms Uh, of like pushing, I think like the basic, I mean, unless you want to make the argument for Mr. Turner, but I don't think, I think that Mr. Turner, like 
follows, uh, you know, like does something that is also pretty similar, which okay. is to, to start at a certain right. point in someone's life and then track through. Formally experimental, I will give you. That it bounces through James Brown's life. Yeah. And seizes on moments that are not necessarily like the basic rise to fame. Like it covers that those like triumphs are covered as well as like the big fight he has with his band. Mm. But I feel like each of them serves to highlight a specific part of his personality rather than, rather than be like, here's the start here. He is Godfather soul, you know, like the end. I, I, I think that's served from the very beginning when it starts off with, you have him like walking through the stadium. There's the chanting and you're like, okay, here we go. Like it's the walk, you know, walk hard at beginning, but, uh, and going right from that into James Brown in the 1980s high bursting into the neighboring, uh, business in the strip mall that he owns and with a gun and delivering a monologue and how inappropriate it is that someone, you know, took a dump in his bathroom. <laughs> right. Uh, that, that it, and also I, I think that, as much as any kind of like mainstream biopic attempts to always solve its its subject, the riddle of the subject, right? To be like, here is the key scene for him, you know, yes. him or her. That I think this doesn't do that so much, or as much as it does, it has as its solution some a lesson that I think is incredibly bittersweet, which I think is probably best embodied in a scene like in the scene with Viola Davis, who, uh, great in this, but who plays his mother, Chadwick Boseman, if I haven't mentioned it before, plays James Brown, soon to be superhero Chadwick Boseman. Um, but that there is a scene in which, uh, his mother who abandoned him as a child in what was a generally very unhappy and impoverished childhood, uh, comes back to see him when he's famous and they have this encounter in his dressing room. And, it's like just this very scathing scene uh, in which there's not really forgiveness or anything. And like the way that he kind of comforts her is by saying, you know, basically you taught me to not need anybody that I'm just going to go this myself and be alone in this, uh, which I think is a very grim lesson to put out there, uh, you know, to be like, here's the, here's the thing he took to him. Like, here's the thing he took to heart. And I think really, uh, informs the movie in an interesting way. There's a later, there's another scene in which it flashes back to his childhood where he's at some kind of charity event in which like a group of little black boys are made to fight each other while the largely white wealthy uh, people around them watch and drink and laugh and bet on them. And uh, there's this really evocative and surreal scene. And there are a few moments of surreality in the movie where he's been knocked down and he looks at uh, the band that is playing kind of light jazz to accompany the event. And then they all start kind of blasting out in his mind, a funk groove instead. And he gets up and he wins. And I think that, you know, like obviously that's a lot of that is an invention of the film, but that it, it's evocative in a way that I think a lot of other biopics never manage. What it say to you, pop? A street kid, Augusta Jones, headed to the White House right now. Says you're kissing up to the man, James. So you telling me to turn his plan around, stand up for president? No, I'm saying you're screwed already, man. I mean, think about it. You stand up, Lyndon Johnson, and go kiss up to the Panthers. You ain't gonna be playing in Vegas anytime soon. Because if they know you can stop a riot, they'll sure as hell expect you to start one. <laughs> Just do your thing, James. It's worked for you so far.
I like this film a lot. I think that it, you know, tried to do something different and got largely ignored for it. Maybe not for it or just as much as people didn't have any, any interest in this type of movie. Yeah. Um, but I think like well, when... it came out in the summer, right? Like the late summer. It did. Sort of yeah. a weird spot for it. And I think that, you know, when uh, the award season is being consumed by two biopics that I think, you know, Imitation Game and The Theory of uh, Everything, that I think are fine but like you know very very straightforward very safe very you know based around these performances that are very easy to give awards to Mm. Uh, you know i think this movie looks much better also in comparison or much more interesting in comparison because it doesn't do that well i mean it does have a lead performance that is quote unquote very easy to give an award to i mean mean, he's he's not getting sure but he's not getting awards he's not and i feel like well but that may have you know there's other reasons why that may be i mean you could give he's playing james brown he's doing like a great james brown you know like but he's he's also playing you know a james brown who like i don't know hits his wife and then kind of like looks at the screen and like looks away like breaks the fourth wall and looks away you know i mean he's not transforming himself into portraying uh, Stephen Hawkins slow decline into you know like no that's but he but he's transforming himself to play James Brown at various points of his life and doing the voice and doing all the dancing I mean there's a certain amount of showy Oscar-y style yeah, acting but I feel in like it a lot of it is about the showiness right like it is about mm. James Brown inventing this inventing the James Brownness of himself I suppose yeah I suppose. and I just I felt it didn't feel like that same kind of pandering to me right I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not saying it's pandering and I'm not I, I don't know that necessarily those movies those other movies are pandering either although they do certainly fit more of the stereotype of the of the you know great man biopic let's say I in terms of uh, get on up I mean I think it's a it's a great choice because it certainly was a movie that was I think ignored is the perfect word it just seemed to sort of come and go and hasn't hasn't gotten a lot of awards attention even though I do think Chadwick Boseman certainly gives a performance that's worthy of uh, you know, Oscar consideration. It's an incredible performance. I mean, he really not only becomes James Brown, as you said, he becomes all these different James Browns, you know, the young guy, the old guy, you know, the the incredibly charismatic performer, the crazy old man who's leading police on these wild chases and stuff. Yeah, he does a fabulous job. I think he's incredible. I, I, I would say, as much as I do agree that it is kind of an interestingly structured, uh, experimental kind of biopic, it felt to me like that sort of peters out by the end of the movie. Like, as it goes on, it does become a little bit more of a traditional biopic in terms of you do kind of get a lot of the beats you're expecting to get by the end of it. The The beginning of it, which is jumping all over the place and is crazy and weird and surprising, that's great. I, I agree with you. That, that stuff's fun. I just thought it kind of lost its nerve a little bit by the end well, of it. It definitely comes around to like your traditional like moment of reconciliation. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Uh, but I feel like even then, there are a lot of those scenes in there that like the follow-up is almost deemed unnecessary, right? Mm-hmm. Like the scene in which he argue- he makes the case for like radio play, for how he's going to get radio play to right. his manager. Right. You know, that that is like it's a really interestingly staged scene and i think a great one Mm. it never follow up to be like and here's what became of that you know like a lot of those things we skip that Mm. which i which is something that i really liked yeah all right well either way i think it's a it's a it's a solid choice and it is an interesting unusual biopic it's worth seeing yeah so there you go all right my they didn't get it award is going to go to a film whose rotten tomato rating currently sits at 28 percent uh it's metacritic score 36 uh, so yeah, not very good. Uh, basically, three out of every four critics hated this movie. Three out of four critics agree. Stay away from Dumb and Dumber 2. 
and chew dentine between meals for fresher breath and a wider smile. Yeah, I'm going with Dumb and Dumber 2. And generally, the critics did not like it. They said it was dumb, which, I mean, technically, shouldn't that be a compliment, Allison? The movie is called Dumb and Dumber 2. If you're calling it dumb, I think you're sort of missing the point. Uh, They also called it sexist, offensive, uh, out of touch. Uh, Susan, um, I think it's pronounced... Willashina, I'm guessing, from RogerEbert.com, asked in her review, is it an occasionally insulting and out-of-touch movie? Only if you think racist jokes aimed at Mexicans, Asians, and even Canadians or ugly sexist taunts directed at women of a certain age who happen to be Kathleen Turner are offensive. Uh, Allison, we saw this movie at the same press screening. We did. As I recall, we sat next to each other. And uh, as I recall, we both laughed quite a bit. Yes. We thought it was... Uh, we, we were each one of those four dissenting critics... Um, but I can't say that I am shocked that most people found it unfunny or out of touch or dated. I mean, it, it, it very much is a throwback to the style of the original film and the style of humor, the gross-out, provocative humor that was very in vogue in the mid-'90s and is not in vogue now. But the further that I've gotten away from this movie, which actually made, I was surprised, it made $82 million bucks in the U.S. and $45 million overseas, so... At least some audiences did get it. Uh, the more I've gotten away from it, the more I kind of admire it, actually. Um, last week, Slate did this terrific package of features about the year in outrage. And they have this uh, incredible interactive calendar for the whole year. How You can see, you can click on it any date of the year and find out what people were outraged about on social media on that day. A few of the incidents and controversies on this calendar are worthy of outrage. The majority of them are ridiculous things that occupy people's time and give them excuse to perform their rightness and their outrage, their moral decency in public. And I think in this world, in this era, in this age of outrage where almost anything can set off controversy and backlash, Dumb and Dumber 2 feels less like a cash-and-sequel for a couple of past-their-prime actors and filmmakers just desperately looking for a nostalgic hit, and more like kind of an act of almost like subversion or bravery, you know, that it, it, it is at times a little offensive. There are some jokes in it that I didn't like, that I did find a little offensive. Uh, there's a sequence involving Harry's adopted parents who are Asian that I just thought was horrible. Yeah. Did not work Absolutely. and was offensive, and if it was up to me, I would cut that scene right out of the movie. I mean, maybe they needed it for structural reasons, but however it was, it's inexcusable on any kind of, you know, level of taste. But taken on a whole, it does strike me that bad taste isn't the worst thing in the world. Like, it just kind of reminded me to lighten, let's all lighten up a little bit, you know? We, We all could use a laugh. We could all lighten up just a little bit. And generally, I think most of the humor in the movie at least the stuff that works, is pointed at the two main idiots, you know? So its its heart is largely in the right place. And I, I don't know, the more I think about it, the more I'm like, they were crazy to make that movie and to release it. And I'm kind of shocked that it wasn't a source of more outrage in the age of outrage. I Maybe that pe- the wrong people or the people that would have gotten outraged did, just avoided it, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, like, okay... It, I definitely didn't like the scene with the parents. Yeah. I think that we should never make another joke about Asian accents yes. and L and R sounds. Agreed. Ever again. I think it's a, it's definitely cruel to Kathleen Turner in the beginning when it first introduces her in a way that I think edges over into the unfunny a bit. Okay. 
there I don't know if I agree, of, but I'll just... There are jokes about, like, her being a man, looking like, you know, like, the when they uh, describe her and, like, can't recognize her, as much as the joke is supposed to be, like, they're... They, they're idiots. They're idiots for not understanding that 20 years have passed and people look right. different. Right. I think what the way they approach that is, like, very harsh. Okay. But I think overall, it's just... It's a dumb movie in, like, a way that I think is... I don't know that I think it's that groundbreaking or that, in, like, in terms of, like... Of course they made this movie. The last one was a giant. Sure. I think like making a sequel is not in any way I don't think, a risky move. I don't think that they, <laughs> uh, uh, what I mean, I don't necessarily mean it as like they they thought they were making something subversive. I just think it feels kind of subversive. But like what part of it do you think feels subversive? Just the fact that it exists, that they would make this movie that's like, that is goading all of these potential, you know, it's like anyone could have protested this movie for, you know, a hundred different things. I mean, we still watch a Christmas story on TV every day, uh, all Christmas. And that has, a, you know, that joke in it. And people think it's a beloved classic. I don't know. I just like, you know, there are there are so many movies that are, you know, it's like th- that once something becomes popular, it just becomes, you know, like there are it just becomes the fodder for a million knockoffs and derivatives. And, you know, right now, every movie, every comedy looks like sort of the the Apatow school of comedy. Right. And at a certain point, every movie kind of had followed the Farrelly Brothers Dumb and Dumber thing. And I just think, like, there's something really that I find really kind of admirable about not making a a modern comedy that just being like, no, we're going to make the Dumb and Dumber 2 we probably would have made in 1998. And we just made it now. I I find that very, if not subversive, I certainly find it very charming and likable. I agree. I find it charming. I find the fact that, like, it looks like a movie that they would have made in 1996. (laughs) Yeah. That it's just as ugly and like just as like committedly stupid in ways that are often very like glorious. Yes. As they're as the last one. You guys want to play He Who Smelt It? Huh? What's that? It's complicated. So pay attention. We'll put the windows up. First one who smells a fart gets a point. If you say who dealt it, double points. But if you say you smelled a fart and nobody farted, like if we were just passing a slaughterhouse, false fart, you lose a point. And you can't smell your own farts either. What, are you guys kidding? No. No. I'm not going to sit around sniffing your guys' farts like some kind of truffle pig. Forget it. (laughs) Okay, fine. Lloyd and I will play one-on-one. Yeah, head-to-head. How can you play one-on-one? If you smell a fart and you didn't do it, isn't it obvious the other guy did? I thought you said you never played before. That I do find admirable. I just, I feel like... You feel like I'm giving it too much credit, and that's fine. I'm sure. Well, I just feel like we're sitting here having just seen the cancellation, having just seen the cancellation of a dumb comedy. Yes. That from the Apatow-ish school. Yes. (laughs) For trying something that apparently was much more daring than they ever would have thought. You know that I don't know. I feel like having a movie that. But what does that take away from Dumb and Dumber Two? No, just that having a movie that is committed only to being as stupid as possible doesn't seem that daring to me. Anyway, let's move on to our next category. Um, Sometimes people do something that's admirable in a movie that no one cares about. In a movie that might actually be just bad. Yes. It it might actually not be worthy of a lot of attention, except that someone in there managed to be the shining jewel in a pile of muck. (laughs) And we want to salute those people. Yes. You know, with an award for best scene in a bad movie. Mm-hmm. And Matt, why don't you take this one first? Okay. Uh, interestingly, my spoofy for the best scene in a bad movie is going for an- another button-pushing comedy, one that I hated. So maybe that makes me a hypocrite. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but this movie, 
it's not that I found this movie offensive. I just didn't find it funny. I was, you know, it was just annoying and it weirdly to hope to be offensive and not even yeah. manage that. Yeah, that's true. It was very, it was trying to be offensive, but it, it ended up being just kind of obnoxious and self-aggrandizing. And that's a million ways to die in the West. Seth MacFarlane's, I would say, unsuccessful attempt to revive the comedy Western and also make himself into a leading man uh, of the screen. And yeah, again, on both those counts, I would deem it unsuccessful, a failure. Uh, some people just like abjectly hate Seth MacFarlane. I'm more Seth MacFarlane agnostic. I've laughed at some of his stuff. I don't really have a strong opinion one way or the other about him in general. I just thought specifically in this case, he was really bad in this movie that just didn't really have much charisma and just cast himself in this bizarre self-pitying way where he's the he's this great guy who's dumped by this girl and gets picked on by Liam Neeson. It's like, you know, the whole movie is like this, like, why won't you love me, uh, women? I'm so funny, and I have a deep, resonant voice, and I make hilarious, off-color humor. Why doesn't, you know, like, what, why am I alone? You know, it's just bizarre that he would cast himself that way. Yeah, like, let me go home and swim in this giant pool, pool of money. Of money. <laughs> right. Very strange casting there. But as terrible as I found Seth MacFarlane, he did cast a lot of great people in this movie, you know, and, and not all of them got great showcases, you know, but I thought some of them had some nice moments. I thought Charlize Theron was good. She is really good in this. Yeah. I feel like it's one of those things where it reminds you that she could be like the funniest, like earthiest kind of like lead, female lead in a movie. Yeah, the kind of thing she doesn't get to she do. She shows that, that. She, you know, she has this other side that she doesn't really get to use very much. But to me, the the big winner of the bunch and the guy that I'm giving the swoovy here to was Neil Patrick Harris, who plays McFarlane's ex-girlfriend's new boyfriend. And he's a total jerk. And Neil Patrick has really revels. He has like the the waxy mustache and he just kind of revels in being this uh, this just total a-hole. And it's interesting now that I'm thinking about it. Like McFarland's shtick is he has this I'm a smug jerk kind of thing, but I'm a nice guy and I want to be liked. And that comes off incredibly like unlikable. That's it's irritating. The worst combo, yeah. Right. And Neil Pat Patrick Harris's shtick in this movie is he's a smug jerk who acts like a smug jerk and dares you to dislike him. And the result is he's so charming and funny and likable. And I just loved him in this movie. And every time he came on screen, I got a little excited because he seemed like the guy who was just most at home in the material and knew what he was making. We were going to go check out the shooting gallery over there. You guys want to join? What? Yeah, it'd be fun, right? Oh, yes. And let's make things interesting. A nickel, a target. You know, that's actually uh, a little rich for my blood. Uh, how about a penny? What's the matter, Albert? Is business bad? Oh, oh. <laughs> no, no, a penny it is. Good Lord, Albert, you're such a sheepskate. Oh, oh. Wow. <laughs> Let's go, Louise, you can shear me on. Oh, no, I did. Uh. The scene that's the real showcase for him, although there are, he has a few good scenes is the one which, for reasons that are not worth getting into, he gets explosive diarrhea in the middle of the street. And the only place for him to relieve himself is his hat. And so he has this lengthy physical comedy showcase. I think it's all one take, too. And we're just watching him kind of convulse and, like, basically poop in a hat, pantomime style. And it's a minute or two long, and I just thought watching it, I was like, this is a masterpiece. This is a masterpiece <laughs> of physical comedy. And it's no, there's nothing written. It is just Neil Patrick Harris being funny. And I was watching it and thinking, if the whole movie was like this, I would love this movie. 
And I was a little ashamed and, and saddened that it wasn't. So to Neil Patrick Harris and to his scene of pooping in a hat, I salute you. And I give you my Svoovy for the best scene in a bad movie. Allison, what's your best scene in a bad movie Svoovy award for? I'm going to give this to uh, 300 Rise of an Empire, uh, which is incidentally available for purchase online, but not rent yet. Um, you know, Ava Green managed to walk away with two totally unnecessary Frank Miller sequels this year. Uh, <laughs> in, in Sin City, A Dame to Kill For, which is not bad so much as just unasked for mm -hmm. um she plays a femme fatale who is so fatal that at one point she has one of her male conquests is like kneeling at her feet and she looks like she could she's about to just like bite his head off uh praying mantis style um and the 300 sequel which is kind of more of a side quill she is the main antagonist as artemisia the head of the persian uh navy and wearer of all sorts of fabulous high fashion battle outfits and she basically becomes the main character in part through the sheer boringness of Sullivan Stapleton <laughs> as Mystocles. He is. The Greek leader. He is. Yes. He is a lack, an absence of presence. Heavy on the abs. Mm, yeah. Well, you know, it is 300. Yes. Yeah. Um, and also she gets like, whereas he just is vaguely. No, he's horrible. I mean, he makes you miss Gerard Butler's. I know. If, if, if you're sitting there going, man, I miss Gerard Butler's raw charisma. You're in a bad, bad place. Well, I think, and then also, you know, at least in the first one, there was this weird kind of like vaguely fascist undertone to where you're uncomfortable kind of rooting for the Spartans because there was all, something in there. All of their, it might a have lot been of incredibly there, objectionable, right. but there was something. Right. There. A lot of the ideas that they were espousing were kind of not great ideas anyway. But in this one, you're rooting for the Greeks, even though you don't know why you're rooting for the Greeks. No, and they seem like kind of jerks. And in fact, Artemisia has a really good reason to be yes. angry with them. Yes. <laughs> like it, it, she should be the hero of the movie the hero, and she's the villain. And she's the villain because she doesn't have as many abs, I guess. <laughs> and that's not her fault. Anyway, the best scene in this movie, and she has a bunch of great, just like she relishes. She's, it's sort of like the Neil Patrick Harris thing where it's like yes. anytime she comes on screen, you get excited. You get excited. She relishes like having sexiness turn to scariness, yeah. like more than any actress working today. And it was a big year for Sexy Scary. I mean, you have Under the Skin. You have A Girl Walks Home at Night. Gone Girl. Gone Girl. But, I, you know, Ava Green is the queen of this. And the best scene is the one in which she meets with the Mysticles. Uh, they have this parlay. Captain Boredom. Of, yes. Um, comes on board the ship. Boracles. Boracles. He <laughs> <laughs> comes on board the ship. And they're having, like, a discussion to kind of see if there's any way around. To avert. She wants to. She war. wants to kind of have him join her. Yes. He wants to avert war. There's this kind of crackling tension between them, or right. she manages to create crackling tension. And <laughs> you're like, wow, this is practically... She really wants to sleep with yeah. that cardboard box like, that looks like that guy. This is practically sexual tension. And then suddenly it <laughs> is sexual tension. <laughs> and they <laughs> this like fight. They have this like sex, sex fight. fight. Sex yes. fight. Like all oh, different surfaces of this cabin. It's this lengthy. Boat. It is lengthy. It is like they're slamming each other against walls. They're like fighting for who's on top. Um, yes. And she, yeah they like she looks like she could bite his head off again mm. and it is like hilarious and outrageous and fantastic and yeah. it works mo because mostly she commits to it so much yeah well it's like you know if you're gonna to if you're gonna poop in a hat you gotta commit you gotta commit exactly you know? and it is I, <laughs> so it's just speak. like and it goes on and on and you're like no it's yes. tremendous it's fantastic your commander is a greek just like me Persian men take your orders from a Greek woman. 
Yes, my brother, I am Greek by birth. And I have Greek blood running through my veins. But my heart is Persian. And it, it almost justifies the rest of the movie. Yes. That scene alone. That scene. And just in general, her, like, there's a la- later part where she is, like, taking charge of the ship and then you, like, pans around her and you see she's wearing this outfit that's, like, basically a ball gown with, like, spine, like, giant spikes, like a dinosaur out of the back. Yeah, her, on her, like, spinal cord. Like, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's fantastic. So it's awesome. She also, she cuts off someone's head by, like, like, slitting their throat and then, like, putting the knife around the back in this, like, weirdly, like, weirdly choreographed way and then lifts it up and I think kisses it. She gets a lot of great terrifying moments in the movie. I really like it's 300 a, rise of Ava green. Yeah. It's just such a kind of non it's non movie. And yet she is so great in it. Um, and it does, even the sex fight does end with this kind of, un- it seems like an almost unintentional punchline in which the Mr. Cleese goes back to his men and they're kind of like, how'd it go? And he like, cannot think of how to st- what to say. <laughs> Um, so, you know, I, I don't know that I can recommend the 300 Rise of an Empire, even even with the greatness of Evergreen, but that scene is fantastic. Um, so, you know, if you're going to check it out, I'm sure it'll it'll end up online somewhere and it's it's worth it. Welcome back to the third annual Spooby Awards. Here now again are your hosts, Matt Singer and Allison Wilmore. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Thank Thank you guys. Yeah. Appreciate We that. are great. We appreciate that. And speaking of appreciating things. Nice. Segway, 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 segway. Our next Spooby Award is going to go to an actor or actress that we felt was underappreciated this year. As you mentioned earlier, Allison, there are some films, particularly ones that come out at the end of the year, they just become sort of earmarked for greatness, for awards, you know, your biopics, your, your, your showy performances, and they get a lot of attention, sometimes very rightfully. I mean, say what you will about the movie. I think Edry Redmayne's performance in The Theory of Everything is incredible. It's, so, it's incredibly impressive, yeah. I think the movie is kind of boring, but I think he is incredible. Uh, but there are a lot of performances that are just as interesting, just as exciting, but for whatever reason, they seem to fall through the cracks. They don't get the same amount of attention. So we thought, let's shine a light on some of those people with a Svoovy Award for the best underappreciated performance. Allison, who is your winner? My winner is Mandy Patinkin for his role in Zach Braff's Wish I Was Here. Wow. Yes, which is available for rent, uh, by the way, if you want to check it out. Here is my thought about why I think it's so easy to hate Zach Braff. <laughs> I'm listening. <laughs> and his movies. Is that like 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 Garden State, Wish I Was Here, is filled with like like welling well intentioned sincerity. It is it it is not there's not phoniness in it. Mm. Like he definitely means every bit of this movie. This is very interesting because I, it, my, my, my my person is gonna there's gonna be similar a similar dovetail here, but okay. go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. 
and and so and then he you watch this movie and you feel like he means every bit of it and then you're also aware that he has nothing to say like and i think that is the thing <laughs> that where you're like oh no like these are your big ideas and they're not they're terrible ideas or like they're just non-ideas you know like wish i was here is you know he plays a 35 year old unsuccessful actor who's married to a wife a great wife who is supporting him and he has two kids and there's no conflict in it like there is it's like another movie about being like kind of wishy-washy and not sure and being a a not successful actor (laughs) and being not really sure where your life is going um just like garden state but uh mandy patinkin in this as uh as the the father of braff's character is this like prickly difficult successful kind of demanding father figure the kind of role that mandy patinkin has been like slowly moving towards and embracing and doing so well in this later part of his career and also in a way that i think kind of like at least in his scenes turns the movie around a bit it's like kind of manages to make it very clear of like how much he feels like the kind of under like undercurrent of disappointment and frustration he feels in his like wishy-washy son who is not you know like he's been financially helping out paying for his their their kids his grandchildren's schooling um he feels kind of disappointed that his son is not like he raised his son to be jewish and his son has like had no particular interest in uh in faith and has sent his you know this this is the reason that he's paying for for his son's kids to go to uh, like an orthodox school, um, and in just in general seems to kind of like they don't connect that well. And also he doesn't like his wife, who's only half Jewish, doesn't approve of her. And I think like it manages in his scenes to have this idea that you know obviously this movie is going to be about like a bit of reconciliation and about how his father's death is going to affect his character. But in, in the scenes with Mandy Patinkin, he's just, he feel he makes him think that you could be watching a movie about a man who is contemplating death and like trying to come around to his son and, and like the legacy of his son and his family instead of a movie about that son who you don't care about very much. <laughs> um, and, and Patinkin is just so good and so kind of soulful and also just so not, easily lovable but he's mandy patinkin and you you know you love him and wish he was your grandfather your difficult grandfather um and he also he the best scene of the movie is actually one in which he talks with kate hudson's character the who you know that well they well they never fought they never got along so well and she is also very good at in, in kind of giving him this lecture about his treatment of his sons in which he eventually says you know you'll be a great matriarch someday and she says, I already am a great matriarch. Um, and I think that I don't, it's a testament to kind of how actors can bring qualities to, I think, a screenplay and to a character on the page that are not, you know, that you wouldn't necessarily see otherwise. Um, and uh, I, he, he's great in the movie. It's not a huge part, but it's a very central one. And I think it's even worth braving a Zach Braff movie wow. to see him in. Okay, my movie for the best underappreciated performance is going to go to a guy that I picked because I, you know, I, I wanted a performance that I couldn't remember hearing like anyone praise. You know, uh, I had a few nominees. I'll give you them very quickly. I thought Channing Tatum in Twenty Two Jump Street is a guy who's just so good in that 
role. He doesn't get a, a lot of credit. He's a great meathead. He is so good at, at being a meathead. He's an amazing meathead. And I, I think because his character is so dumb and kind of it seems I think we maybe wrongfully assume he's just kind of playing himself a little bit that uh, he doesn't get the credit he deserves. So uh, honorable mention Channing Tatum. I also thought I've written a lot about the movie recently and so I didn't want to just rehash myself but Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon in The Trip to Italy. I just love their performances. And that movie in general, I thought, was very underappreciated. So shout out to them as well. But my, my pick, my Spoovy Award winner, is going to be Tom Cruise in, I guess, what is now referred to officially as Live, Die, Repeat, colon, Edge of Tomorrow. Uh, I don't remember anyone saying much of anything good about Tom Cruise's performance. I remember seeing in reviews a lot of, of good notices for Emily Blunt. Yes. She's the badass future warrior and sexy yoga poser that sort of is his mentor. And and she deserved all the acclaim she got. She was great. But I think Tom Cruise is maybe overlooked. And perhaps Tom Cruise is overlooked a lot. I, I, I did read some people saying, oh, well, he's miscast in this part. He's mm. not right for this part because he's played an action hero so many times that to cast him as a guy who has no battlefield experience, who gets thrown into this war and is so incompetent that he's instantly killed and then has to come back to life over and over again, Groundhog Day style, until he figures things out and becomes the the leader of these uh, human forces against these alien invaders, that it just does like it doesn't work. And I, I guess I can sort of see their point. Maybe like the ideal sort of obvious choice would be someone like Jesse Eisenberg where, you know, he doesn't look like a warrior, right? And we've never seen him play a, a, a badass warrior on screen, and so in the movie, like, him becoming that would be kind of fun or something. I guess, maybe. But the fact that Tom Cruise sells his the, the part as well as he does and that you do buy into him as quickly as you do is yet another credit to his performance, his skills as an actor. And I think he's funny and charming, and eventually he does become, like, you know, the cool... Tom Cruise action hero. He certainly out exosuits Matt Damon in Elysium in this movie. I mean, there's just night and day, no, no question. Uh, but thinking more about the movie, what struck me was the notion that perhaps this, the central idea of Edge of Tomorrow, this dying over and over again, doing things over and over until you get it right, is perhaps a metaphor for Tom Cruise's appeal, which is his work ethic. You know, you can say Tom Cruise was good or in something, he was bad in something. That's subjective. That's opinion. But I don't think what you can ever say is that Tom Cruise phoned it in or that he didn't try. Tom Cruise doesn't phone anything in. That's just, that's not what he does. He shows up for every movie, for every part. You may not like him. You may not like the movie. But he's going to try his hardest. And that's what made me think of what you were describing about Zach Braff is that there is an earnestness to Tom Cruise. You know, there's not a lot of irony or, you know, he commits he believes, right? And sometimes that comes off as a little sad, a little weird, you know, Oprah, the couch jumping incident. But in Edge of Tomorrow, I, you know, I feel like it's almost like a thesis statement. Like, this is what you do. You show up. You do the work. You do it over and over again until it's good. Blood, sweat, and tears. That's the top. You know, he's the guy who's like, oh, in this scene, my character is hanging off the tallest building in the world. Well, I'm going to do it. I don't care if I have a stunt double. What they've, I've seen pictures of him in the new Mission Impossible. He's like hanging from a jet fighter thousands of feet in the air. It's so stupid. No one should do that, but he does it. He commits, right? And certainly he's a, you know, he's a handsome guy. He has charisma. He has star power. But the thing that, I, but the thing is, he's getting older, right? He's a 50-year-old guy now. And I think the thing that separates him from a lot of his peers these days is the fact that he commits. 
he tries. Even in a losing effort, he gives it his all. And I think that's what I really more and more increasingly appreciate about Tom Cruise. And I think that that's kind of what I love about Edge of Tomorrow is that it sort of works as this. This is why I like Tom Cruise is that he will he will do he will fight those aliens a thousand times until he gets it right. Stop. Wait, 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 wait. Stop. Wait, wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. Because I've been thinking. I mean, this thing's in my blood. So maybe there's some way I can transfer it to you. I've tried everything. It doesn't work. I mean, have you, you know, tried all, all the options? Oh, you mean sex? Yeah, tried it. How many times? All right. Yeah, that movie in general, it should have been a bigger hit. It's really yes. sad that it, it just kind of, it, it didn't do that well. Yes. Um, there was also that great scene in the movie, the one time where he kind of takes a break. Mm-hmm. Where he like he goes off and says like I'm not gonna do it today I'm not gonna go through the whole process I'm gonna go to a bar yes <laughs> and like that scene is so good because there's you're, a like, lot of great little yeah, scenes where you're movie. like you would be you would be exhausted like you would be just so disheartened yes. at this point you, and we talk and nowadays we talk about you know like Bill Murray's performance in Groundhog Day and how great it is and I'm not saying Tom Cruise is as good as that but just again the level of difficulty in this kind of performance where you're doing things over and over again is so high and he makes it look. Not right. easy because well, he, like, he makes everything look hard. That's part of the shtick. Right. But he does a great job of creating the character, building the arc, making us see how he transforms. Right. Well, and especially like the look on his face as he gets like shot again and again and yes. again. Yes. Like, is is great. It's yes. never easy to, it's, yeah, to, to it die. Never, exactly. Right. Never he never gets easily. used to that part. He hates that part. No. What's our next Svoovy Award, Allison? Well, let's take a look at best streaming discovery. Okay. You know, we are a streaming podcast. We yes. talk about things that are, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the movies that we're, g- we're talking about on this podcast are not yet available to stream. Right. Though we're going to mention whenever they are at least available for rent. Yeah, oh, Edge of Tomorrow, by the way, I didn't mention, is available for rent, Amazon, iTunes, all the usual places, and definitely worth seeing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, you know, we w- always want to give a shout out to the movies that or TV shows that we catch on streaming that yep. maybe are not ones that we'd already had an eye on or ones that we kind of stumbled on ones that are discoveries. Right. And that, also ones we haven't discussed at length on the show. Right. And you know, I, I think that one of the great things about having uh, streaming sites and the algorithm algorithms they try and build to help us do this is that you stumble on things or you, you finally get around to a movie that you kind of put on your list and uh, can't even remember why. And then it turns out to be great. So Matt, what is your streaming discovery this year? My streaming discovery is a film that I rented on Amazon, which is how you can find it. You can rent it. And it was a movie I watched for a piece that I wrote for the dissolve back when I was at the dissolve. We did a, uh, a feature, an occasional feature where uh, tied to a holiday, we would sort of recommend movies you could watch at home, similar to Film Spot, I guess, for you, actually. And in this case, it was for Memorial Day. So we were all war movies. And the movie that I watched, which I hadn't seen before and I loved, is a film called Attack. Sometimes it's uh, with Attack with an exclamation point from 1956, directed by Robert Aldrich. And it's a movie about World War II. And what I found particularly interesting about it is that so many movies, even to this day, World War II is, you know, the last good war. And and this is an interesting movie because it doesn't really engage with that so much as it engages with the dark side of any war, including World War II. Um, and it's about these soldiers whose lives are essentially put at risk by incompetent 
superior officers. And it is about these soldiers who are trying to essentially save their lives and prevent themselves from being lined up for slaughter by the Germans. And uh, Jack Palance stars in the film and gives a really intense, well, he's Jack Palance, that probably goes without saying, but an intense performance as this lieutenant whose platoon is, again, put at risk by this sort of dumb captain, played by Eddie Albert, and this politically-minded colonel, played by Lee Marvin. And the captain keeps sending Palance's men you know, to the wolves. He keeps putting them out there where they're, they could, they're easy targets. And eventually, Jack Palance has enough, and he basically swears revenge, but that's not going to be easy to get because he's sort of trapped in this impossible circumstance surrounded by Nazis, surrounded by the SS. And so you have all these great performances. You have this really interesting moral question, and you have this central kind of uh, story that I really got invested in, which is will Jack Palance, will he be able to survive long enough to get his revenge against this kind of dumb uh, captain, the Eddie Albert character? And it never sort of says the war is bad or not worth fighting for, but I think what it really gives you a sense of is taking a, a hard look at war and and be, it really becomes this very kind of powerful tribute to soldiers and what they do. And, and what they do, even when they know that what they're doing is, maybe if it's it, the cause is right, but what they're doing maybe won't help that cause. And what it takes to, to sacrifice yourself or to run into a battlefield that you know is ultimately not worth the risk you're taking. And so it was a movie that I certainly had heard of. I, I, I like Robert Aldrich's movies a lot. You know, The Dirty Dozen is another good World War II movie that sort of burrows into the myths of World War II, and uh, I was happy to finally get to see it because I thought it's a really smart, interesting, but still very exciting and um, dramatic World War II movie. So that's Attack, and it's rentable on Amazon and Google Play and YouTube and definitely worth checking out. Allison, what is your best streaming discovery of 2014? Uh, well, I'm not going to, this is not going to be my main pick, but I did want to give a shout out to High Maintenance, which I've talked about before, yep. and which is exists on Vimeo. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just in terms of something that's exclusively streaming and that feels not like traditional television, mm -hmm. there's something very exciting about that. But my pick is actually a movie that was technically released this year, and I think and didn't get a lot of attention and wasn't one that I was necessarily even on my radar, except that I'd read something somewhat recently that made me pick it out. It is Le Weekend, which is currently streaming on Netflix, a movie directed by Roger Mitchell, who did Notting Hill, uh, made the interesting The Mother, uh, and The Horrible. His most recent film was a movie I actively despised, Hyde Park on Hudson, <laughs> uh, which was just, it wasn't just like... Don't make me I relive know, it, Allison. It wasn't just bad, it was like, it was like lacking in moviness in a lot of ways. <laughs> and I, yeah. So, I mean, nothing there, not, not a filmmaker whose work I was devoted to by any means. Uh, this movie is written by Hanif Qureshi and is mostly uh, just about two people. Uh, Nick played by Jim Broadbent and Meg Burrows played by Lindsay Duncan, uh, who are a married pair of teachers and academics from Birmingham who are, uh, they go to Paris for the weekend uh, for their 30th wedding anniversary. 
And there's something that I think in the look of how the little weekend in the like title, in the posters, in the trailer, even it's made to look like the best exotic Paris hotel. <laughs> right. Right. Yes, it that, does. Like, That's absolutely how they're selling it. It looks very cuddly. It looks very like a movie that your parents, you know, your parents will love. Certainly. Um, it's not. It's actually very pointed and very kind of elegantly written as an exploration of like aging and kind of dissatisfaction and disappointment and a lot of like the buildup of like rage that you can have towards like a partner over years and years and years of like frustration and in particularly in the case of these two as they they kind of go to I think like hopefully you know reinvigorate their marriage by revisiting this place that they'd spent their kind of honeymoon on they 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 end up like revisiting picking at all of these old wounds and almost like for a while it looks like that you're seeing the end of their relationship but they basically spend the days kind of going to restaurants and going to um to museums and also staying at a, a hotel they can't really afford because the hotel they stayed at 30 years ago has now become all run down that was supposed to be romantic and they get there and they're like no who'd want to live anywhere else <sighs> let's do it what Sell up. Get a little apartment here. Well, we still have to earn money. Haven't we worked for long enough? What else would we do? We could be artists. <laughs> Nick, I'm from Birmingham. Not by birth. But I think, you know, you have two really terrific performances from these lead actors. And I, what emerges slowly over as they talk is your understanding that, like, she, how frustrated she feels with kind of his caution and his devotion to being, like, fixing the tiles in the bathroom and to taking his, like, irresponsible, their irresponsible 30-something son back into the house he wants to move back in and to kind of... Uh, to this life that they've settled into and she you know still feels more vibrant than he is and more kind of like ambitious and is like on the verge of maybe leaving him and he is kind of clingy and he also you know feels like her dissatisfaction is not necessarily related to him um and he th they have all of these exchanges that i think are so sharp like unexpectedly so because they're so couched in both familiarity and also like British politeness um, but at one point he says you can't you can't not love and hate the same person and that's really the undercurrent of this whole of this whole thing as they kind of this weekend abroad becomes like they're almost dipping into luxury that they never were able to uh, to to have in their very modest and not exceptional lives you know and that they're kind of coming to terms with the fact that their lives are not have not are not going to be like you know so bright and shiny as they hoped as as kids they also there's also a late appearance in the movie by uh jeff goldblum who is great as well as a former colleague from um, their college days who has gone on to become this kind of pop intellectual has left his wife has married a young beautiful parisian woman leads a seemingly fantastic life and also kind of keeps talking back to all of the how principled um nick was as uh, in college and like what he taught him about like leftist politics and all of that i don't know this movie i think 
really pleasantly surprised me and it is definitely one that I would I would urge you to check out. It does so much and so kind of so much in tiny scenes of dialogue and tiny scenes of how even like how people choose to sit at a restaurant or when someone decides to read a newspaper instead of talking to their partner and how that can speak volumes about how the kind of power that goes back and forth um, just what it means to be in a long-term relationship like that. It's, it's very good. Uh, Le Weekend, currently streaming on Netflix. All right, one of the things this year, uh, one of the kind of recurring themes, if there has been like a c- most common recurring theme in movies, has been movies about artists, particularly artists that are in a moment of like dilemma or kind of are, are crisis, from movies like Chef to Mr. Turner, we've, which we've mentioned, to a bunch of movies that are currently still in theaters or about to come out. So Matt, what is your pick for the best portrait of the of an artist this year? Well, I'm tipping my hand a little bit on my top 10 list, but I basically just picked the movie of this category that wound up the highest on my top 10 list, which was Whiplash, uh, written directed by Damien Chazelle. I think this one is still in theaters. But I imagine it should be coming to home video rentable in some form or fashion in the relatively near future. Probably, I would expect, if not, you know, in the next month or two, then right, you know, by the Oscars, it should be because they're going to be wanting to capitalize because J.K. Simmons will absolutely be nominated. Probably is going to win. Certainly the front runner. Front runner right now. Certainly the front runner to win the best supporting actor and and well deserved. I mean, he gives an incredible performance. I don't know if we've talked about this movie on the show yet. I mean, I just, I love this movie. I've seen it twice. I've talked about it with two different film groups that I lead for hours and hours and hours. And uh, I liked it more the second time I saw it. I thought it was great the first time I saw it. And I, I th- thought it, it was even more interesting the second time, even though it's, it's very much a suspense movie. It's a thriller in some ways, even though it's about a young man in in a conservatory, in a jazz conservatory. It builds to this incredible finale. But the ideas behind the finale, I think, are what really I found so interesting. Both times I saw it, and even more interesting the second time. And the basic premise, just very quickly, is that Miles Teller plays this young man who is an aspiring jazz drummer. He goes to this conservatory. He kind of catches catches the attention of this uh, domineering, abusive teacher who runs the most important band in the school and joins the band and is kind of mercilessly abused but in the process perhaps becomes a better drummer and the whole point is that uh that the teacher played by jk simmons believes that this sort of treatment is what creates artists and what creates better artists and that it's only through sort of this hazing process that someone achieves their true potential in that in this very interesting speech he gives at one point in the movie he says the two worst words in the english language you can say to someone are good job and i don't know that i necessarily agree but i think that the movie is a fascinating exploration of these ideas got any friends andy no well why is that i don't know i just never really saw the use oh well you can play with otherwise lennon and mccartney they were school buddies am i right charlie parker didn't know anybody until joe jones threw a symbol at his head so that's your idea of success huh i think being the greatest musician of the 20th century is anybody's idea of success dying Broke and drunk and full of heroin at the age of 34 is not exactly my idea of success. I'd rather die drunk, broke at 34 and have people at a dinner table talk about me than live to be rich and sober at 90 and nobody remember who I was. Ah, but your friends will remember you. That's the point. None of us were friends with Charlie Parker. That's the point. Travis and Dustin, they have plenty of friends and plenty of purpose. I'm sure they'll make great school board presidents someday. Oh, that's what this is all about? You think you're better than us? Catch on quick, I model you in. I got a reply for you, Andrew. You think Carlton football's a joke? 
Come play with us. Four words you will never hear from the NFL. Who wants dessert? And from Lincoln Center? I, 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 we, we could do a whole two-hour podcast on this movie. I mean, I've, I've talked about it so long. But I just found that the, the, the ideas about this and, and the movie, the way the movie explores them are just so interesting. Like, you know, without spoiling the ending, I think the question of, is the ending of this movie a happy ending, I think is a question that you could spend a whole podcast talking about. Just so, so interesting. And, and the sacrifices that artists make for their art, which was really like the theme of the year in terms of so many movies, I think is explored in, in a fascinating way in this movie. Even if I don't necessarily agree with the sort of what I, uh, some of the ideas that the movies put forward, I think that the, the wrestling with them or perhaps exploring them in a, is a, you know, and, and questioning my own beliefs about these sort of things uh, just so worth seeing and talking about and thinking about. And uh, this is a movie that I have thought about a lot and I just keep thinking about over and over again. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's great. I think Damien Chazelle is a really talented young filmmaker and I really, really can't wait to see what he, what he does next. I hope he has a lot of movies this good in him because that would be really exciting for me as a film fan because I, uh, I love watching his his movies. So that is that that's my pick. Whiplash still in theaters coming soon hopefully to uh VOD and 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 uh home viewing. Allison, what's your pick? I did not pick the top one on my top 10 list oh. in this category. And okay. as you meant, as we both said, there's there are a lot of movies in this category yes. that have come out this year. Um but I the one that I went with is the one that I think most stuck in my head just in terms of the character which is top five, which is still in theaters, um, but and is has the most element of self-portraiture to it uh, mm-hmm. out of all of these as well. You know, Andre Allen, the, the stand-up and actor who is played by Chris Rock in the movie, is a talented comedian whose like, self-awareness keeps puncturing this bubble of celebrity in which he's trying to exist, which is one of the things that I like so much about this. You know, he's the star. He, the thing that he became famous off of is a string of terrible comedies in which he wears a costume and he is he solves crimes as Hammy the Bear, uh, like in the lo- you know in the in the vein of like Big Mama's House or White Chicks. Uh, it's and he knows they're not very good and he's also sober now and can't really bring himself to keep making them. And so he's made this movie that is really like the the Hollywood sanctioned serious movie that you can do as a black performer, right? He has made like a very serious, grim uh, movie about race, history and race. This uh, playing the leader of a Haitian slave rebellion in a movie called Uprise with a Z. And I, uh, one of the things that I like so much about Top Five, which is this very messy, not an imperfect, and but like really. kind of like such an energetic and kind of satisfying movie is that the movie allows that both of these things are terrible, that Hammy the bear is terrible, but that also uprise his attempt to make, to be like a legitimate serious actor is not very good either. And top five is, I think, you know, in Birdman, which is kind of like the, the parallel movie to top five in some ways. Yeah. Birdman never really comes down on whether or not the play that Riggin is doing is a good play or not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's there's an open question, 
Whereas it seems pretty bad, but I've had that discussion with people too. It, right? Yeah, it's, like it's it, ambiguous. It's ambiguous. Whereas I, there's no question in top yeah, five. Yeah, Hammy the Bear the up, is horrible, and the Uprise is terrible. Oh, and Uprise. When you watch is Uprise, yes, when you watch clips of Uprise, it looks hilariously terrible. Right. And I well, I even the poster with oh, his the like poster. It's like such a good parody of yes. like this type of like earnest self-serious, self-serious comedian tries to become dramatic acting. right yeah no you're right yeah, right absolutely it's and pretty I, clear I, I think that there's something kind of great uh i won't spoil what happens towards the ending but the ending does kind of reinforce that just because you want to do this thing that you think that this is you know like your next step for you right doesn't mean that you're good at it <laughs> right you know and that like maybe there is something that you are good at that you need to come back to right it's the classic sullivan's travels right. sort of thing but again and, and what i like about the movie is that it's sort of like instead of making uprise make top five basically exactly. right yeah and also that top five there's no such th- uh, you know that there's a real sense of like there's no real movie like top five yes. or at least for a comedian you know that he's had to figure out the new movie to make that there's no real path for that mm. and there's something great about that in top five yeah. which is still in theaters and which you should check out yeah it's hard enough getting you a job as it is i mean it's not like everybody's not going to do it for work it's really hard to get your work you know that and i know that do you think the wedding is hurting me are you kidding me listen andre the wedding is the best thing that you got going right now and let's be honest Andre, this thing flops. We could be talking Dancing with the Stars, man. Dancing with the f- stars? Yes, Dancing with the Stars. That's where you're at right now. Andre, all these people want to do is follow you around for one day. Let them follow you around. You know, if I get the word out, this movie could still be a big hit. It could be like a Haitian Django. If, if you say so, Andre, then yeah. Hold on, hold on. Hey, hey, hey. What is going on? What's everybody running to? Zoolander's in the conference room. Vince Dill is in the conference These white people don't tell me That's, yeah, I, you know, it's funny. I... Obviously, there are autobiographical elements to it. I didn't really, I was, I didn't really feel it was. Su- I mean, the character. I don't think this is a spoiler. Andre Allen has like a huge substance abuse problem, right? Which Does is Chris not Rock Chris Rock. No, and, know, Chris, and I mean the thing is, Chris Rock's life is very together, right? Right. He is. He has his house in New Jersey. Right. I mean, like he's family. playing a comedian, he's a sure. Yeah. But I think that in terms of like his very like acute observations of like being a comedian and being a black comedian, yeah that in hollywood like are yeah, absolutely I think are absolutely like so kind of have come from his own right yeah yeah that's true it's funny though the other person i thought of it not that he has a substance abuse issue was i kind of reminded me of like adam sandler like the care you know like and making these ha- like adam sandler i almost could see making hammy the bear like yes, that absolutely. sounds like an adam sandler movie and if you believe that adam sandler is like this brilliant comedian somewhere deep down like who's sort of sold his soul to make these schlocky movies and then turns around and makes serious movies too like what was uh the women co- and children the cobbler you know that movie that i haven't seen yet i shouldn't i shouldn't judge but got terrible reviews at uh at toronto so yeah or men women and children with the jason wright movie yeah it's just it's it, it just i don't know i thought it was i kind of saw him as like playing adam sandler which was kind of interesting anyway we're getting sidetracked we're going long here let's let's wind down we've got uh I think we've got two more spoovies to give out, plus our listener's choice spoovie. We have to give, we have to reveal the winner. Uh, let's get on to best title sequence, Allison. Very quickly here. This yes. was suggested, by the way, by uh, by one of our. We asked for people to suggest categories. This one was suggested by uh, a Twitter follower, V O N O R A T I Vincent Honorati suggested best title sequence would be a good category, and we agreed. Allison, who is the spoovie award winner yeah. for best title sequence? Well, I feel like. There aren't a lot of title like opening title sequences as yeah, much anymore. Yeah, you kind of have to fudge. You kind of have to fudge it with like opening and closing. Yes. And so this is that was great because it gives me a chance to talk about the closing credits of Twenty Two Jump Street, which oh, is currently yes. available for oh, rent, yes. Yes. and which is where it sends them off into what first starts as an echo of how the first movie ended. 
you know, where they joke about like you uh, two were going to college, like, and then and the then next they movie they actually do go yes. to college, and that you know, then you have uh, Ice Cube saying you two are going to medical school, and then we see ads for Twenty Three Jump Street Medical School, and then from there we go on to sequels involving foreign exchange students, seminary school, celebrity cameos, uh, you know, jokes about recasting and contract disputes, and um, going on and on. It is a hilarious, pitch perfect skewering of the current franchise mentality. Um, that is, you know, fairly significantly undermined by the immediate green light of a third 21 Jump Street movie that is actually happening. Um, and also that Sony email hack info that they were considering having it be a crossover with Men, Men in, Black in Black. Yes, they would to become re- revitalized right, the, the other franchise as well. Yeah, yes. that the two main characters <laughs> from 21 Jump Street would become yes, the Men, Men in Black. Black. I know. Is uh, both the worst and best idea <laughs> I have ever heard in my life. Yeah, I think, and I feel like there's something about this that is very signature Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, who directed this and have directed the Lego movie, and whose work I t- enjoy a lot. Both of yeah. those are like fantastically enjoyable movies, but they. Man, it, they poke fun at Hollywood and wink at Hollywood conventions while also existing very comfortably in Hollywood yeah. movies. Yeah, they they <laughs> they make fun of of their the selling out while selling out with a plum. Exactly. That really is their thing. But I I did love those title sequences. It was a great, they were fantastic. It was a great choice. All right, my pick. Well, first of all, we have to give a shout out to, if not the greatest title sequence of the year, the greatest film of the year. Period. I speak, of course, of Too Many Cooks. I mean, <laughs> yes. if, I mean, there really was that no... Is, this is a very good point. There's no competition as far as I'm concerned. It probably doesn't count technically, but I had to at least mention that there was no better title sequence this year than Too Many <laughs> yes. Cooks. That is the win- the clear winner. And actually, uh, uh, we've had the, the writer and director of Too Many Cooks, Casper Kelly, has written to me on Twitter saying he's a fan of the podcast, which is incredibly exciting and flattering. So if he is listening, this is like an honorary... <laughs> award. I felt like it was cheating to give it to it, but I, that was I felt was the deserving winner. Nonetheless, excluding too many cooks, my winner is Gone Girl, and it's actually an opening title sequence. And certainly, David Fincher is a guy who has a lot of memorable title sequences to his credit: Fight Club, Panic Room, and compared to those, Gone Girl is pretty subdued. I mean, it's it's white text on shots of the Missouri town where this film is set. But, you know, it was like one of those things where, okay, the credits are starting, you're watching, and then you're like, what's off about these credits? And it was the the way that the credits appeared on the screen, right? They would flash on screen, and then they would, like, almost too quickly, they would vanish. They would disappear, like, quicker than you could read them or quicker than was normal for an opening credit sequence. And I just thought that was brilliant. It just immediately set the mood for a film about disappearance, for vanishing, for this person who goes missing. The way that the car- like that the, the credits were, like, they were vanishing too quickly to read. Just such a such a brilliant little touch, you know? And there's other... Now, granted, there's not a lot of opening credits that are big these days, but certainly there's a lot of cr- closing credit sequence that are very big. But when we looked at... We decided on this Svuvi Award category, this was the first thing that came to mind because I just thought nothing better this year except maybe 2022 Jump Street really fit its movie and the spirit of its movie and and like kind of set the mood better than Gone Girl. Didn't do a lot. It wasn't, you know, excessive, but just the little touch, the attention to detail, it just shows you that really, you don't, you know, big and lavish doesn't necessarily mean most memorable or meaningful. Just the little things that they did for that Gone Girl sequence really put you in the frame of mind to enjoy that movie. So that's my pick. All right. Well, that brings us to uh, an award we love to give out every time and then see how wrong we may or yeah. may not have been, which is the best movie of 2015. The best movie of next year. We yes. try to predict. We give a Svuvi Award early 
for next year's best film, what we think is going to be next year's best film. Allison, I have our picks from last year. Okay. Do you, would you like to know? I we only picked know. one last year. Okay. Allison, your choice for the best movie of 2014 was Noah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How did you feel about Noah when it came out? I did not think it was the a best movie, movie we talked about on the show, we right? Did. It was. It's not. I don't think either of us would call that the best movie of 2014. Certainly not. Certainly not. My pick for the best film of 2014 was Nymphomaniac, a movie I actually strongly disliked. <laughs> not only uh, mixed, but strongly negative on. So. Our track record, we've had better years. We've picked, you know, we've had years where we've picked movies that we've really liked or have been on top 10 lists. Last year, we didn't do so well. But I feel like next year, we're going we're gonna to hit this one right on the head. So All right. who's your Spoovy Award winner for the best movie of 2015? Um, I did want it. It's not my pick, but I wanted to give a shout out to Mad Max Fury Road. Yes. Just for yes. having the best trailer. Certainly the so best good. trailer but, of you know, the year. We can't pick ones that have trailers out already. That's like cheating, right? Okay. I didn't pick one with I didn't think I didn't, of it that way, but yeah. I didn't pick but, one you know, with a trailer I just I feel either. like we shouldn't be informed about how this movie actually is going to look. My rule for this is always, you can't pick a movie that's played anywhere. If it's played a festival right. or anything, exactly. that's out. Yeah. So I tried to be like, too easy to totally be like, blind. Yes. going in blind all right so i'm going with midnight special i don't even know what this movie is you will hear it and okay. then you'll be like this sounds like the best movie i'm of listening 15 sci-fi chase film mm-hmm. written and directed by jeff nichols oh. of mud and take shelter oh, it will be does. his first studio film oh. stars adam driver oh Michael i do Shannon, know this movie yeah kirsten dunce and joel edgerton oh yeah that's coming out in november um here's what he said about it my next film is a sci-fi chase film. However absurd that sounds, it's more grounded than mud. I really wanted to make a 1980s John Carpenter film like Starman. Uh, I love the way those films look. Oh, my God. Yes. And, you know, Jeff Nichols, a director whose work I we really, love. yeah, I think is fantastic. The idea of him kind of making something like this for his first big movie, like having, and that cast is great. I just, wow. I'm excited. That sounds awesome. If I had awesome. seen that one when I was doing my research for this, I might have picked <laughs> it as well. That's, oh yeah, that's a great, great pick. Mm, that so what did great. you pick? I picked a movie that doesn't even have a title yet. <laughs> Untitled Cold War spy thriller. It's what it's being referred to at the moment as. This is the new movie from Steven Spielberg and it stars Tom Hanks and Amy Ryan and it's co-written by the Coen brothers. So that's really what gets my attention. It is a Spielberg and Hanks movie. And I love I'm one of my all-time favorite movies by Spielberg. And it's kind of rising as I see it more and more is Catch Me If You Can. is one of my favorite, favorite Spielberg movies. And just I love that movie. So Hanks and Spielberg, you've already got a great combination. Uh, and then the fact that it's co-written by the Coen brothers. The plot is an American lawyer is recruited by the CIA during the Cold War to help rescue a pilot detained in the Soviet Union. That doesn't give you a lot to go on. It sounds like it's, you know, certainly a story with potential, but yeah, just it's director, actor, and writers. I, I, I'm generally like sort of like, uh, I mean, I like Steven Spielberg, but it's not, not someone where I always assume his next movie is going to be a masterpiece, but man, that sounds, I am really looking forward to seeing untitled Cold War spy thriller <laughs> Whatever, whatever TBD title it's, it, it has to have. That's my, that's my guess. I'm hoping, I'm hoping we're both right this year because they both sound really good. Allison, last but not least, we asked, we asked listeners on our last episode to pick the best movie of the year, to give their own listener's choice movie. The options were Birdman, Boyhood, Gone Girl, The Grand Budapest Hotel, Galaxy of the Guardians, or Other. And certainly there were a lot of other options. 
So perhaps not surprisingly, Other was the winner of, <laughs> of the Savuvi Award with 31%. Um, I can tell you, based on the write-in votes, what were the, the most popular write-in votes, which I think is interesting. Uh, let's let let me let me start from the bottom up. Well, we single votes for only lovers left alive. The Babadook. So someone, Josh, wrote in for the Babadook. I'm sorry, Josh. I disagree with you. Uh, Cold in July, Inherent Vice, uh, and a field in England. I thought was interesting as well. So and we had two votes from Stephen and Peter for Interstellar, Christopher Nolan's Interstellar. Uh, three votes from Ron Schweig and R. Kenny. Oh no, four votes. Excuse me, four votes. Ron Schweig, R, the letter R, and Kenny for Whiplash. Uh, three votes for Nightcrawler. Uh, three votes for Snowpiercer. And then the winner of the others with five votes, Under the Skin, which actually was in the first version of the draft of the poll that I deleted because I just I had too many options. I tried to make it smaller. But then amongst the actual poll, uh, in last place was Guardians of the Galaxy with 4.8%. Then we had Birdman with 6.3%. Kind of surprised. I thought, I, I mean, I wasn't a huge Birdman fan, but I, I thought it was, uh, would have been, gotten a little, little more votes. Then very close, Gone Girl and the Grand Budapest Hotel, just neck and neck, 16.2% and 16.8%. Grand Budapest Hotel slightly ahead. But then number one amongst the actual named movies, Boyhood with 24% of the vote. And uh, yeah. Excellent, excellent choices from the uh, the others. Excellent choices from the the Sfuvi voters. Thank you, everyone who voted. We will have our uh, listeners' choice review on our next episode. We'll get to those options in just a few minutes. All right, before we get to our behind the eight ball segment, let's do it. Let's do the official top ten list. And we have run a little long on this episode as the Sfuvi Awards. The Sfuvi Awards, they're a huge just just like the Oscars, the Sfuvi Awards are a huge production. They take they're a lot bloated, of time. They're bloated, yes. Yeah. And the dialogue's so terrible. We're just going to just run down our picks. If you want to read more about them, Allison's list is posted at BuzzFeed. Yes. My list is posted at Screen Crush. Just type in our names, type in, you know, best of top ten best of two thousand fourteen. They should come up. You should be able to find them. And if we have any comments, we may make them afterwards. But we're just going to run through the picks. So, Allison, go ahead. Okay. Starting from 10, candidate number one. Let's hear it. Selma, Ida, Guardians of the Galaxy, Whiplash, Inherent Vice, Birdman, The Tale of Princess Kaguya, The Grand Budapest Hotel, Two Days, One Night, and my number one pick, Under the Skin. Interesting. All right. My list from 10 to 1, starting with... Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, We Are the Best, The Trip to Italy, Selma, Force Majeure, Jodorowsky's Dune, Under the Skin, Whiplash, The Grand Budapest Hotel, and number one, Boyhood. So only four films in common. Only four, huh? Which the four were what they were: Whiplash, Selma, Selma, Under the Skin, Under the Skin, Grand Grand Budapest Hotel, Grand Budapest Hotel. Which I think actually speaks to this year, which is there's a lot of great movies. Yeah, and there's not. I think there's not a lot of consensus. I think. I mean, Boyhood is actually the film with the most consensus, which is the film I liked a lot, but that. Uh, like being honest about looking back at the year and like didn't, I didn't, didn't connect to up. as I just didn't connect to as much as I know a lot of other people. Right. Did. Right. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I, I, I feel like the conversation we could have, which we won't have now, but we should have at some point is about Birdman, which is a yes. movie I don't particularly like. Yes. I, I know you were anti it. I, I mean, I wasn't as, uh, as, as profoundly against it as some of our colleagues, some of my former colleagues at the dissolve. Yes. Some they did not like hated it. the movie. And I just, I, I 
it's it, I think it's would it could be one of those movies we as we mentioned earlier like a movie that you don't particularly like watching but you enjoy talking about reading about I love talking about Birdman I had some great discussions I did another one of my my film group that I lead at the Nighthawk Cinema in Williamsburg we talked for all, like three hours about Birdman and it was a fabulous discussion but I don't really like the movie very much yeah so I think maybe maybe at some point when it comes on uh, VOD, when it's uh, available on Netflix, maybe we'll do that as a listener's choice review and we'll really get into it. But that's the one I feel like we need to discuss. There's no, that's the only one on your list that I'm like, you know, a little little agnostic to, uh, you know, against all the other ones. The other one, Inherent Vice, is a movie that I, I saw. I've saw. I've seen it. I liked it. I need to see it again. I didn't feel like I got it on the first viewing. It's I liked it better. Than, I mean, I, I, I liked it, it when, Yeah, I liked it when I saw it, but I liked it more when I saw it again. Yeah, it's a movie that what I said on Letterboxd when I, uh, you know, my brief review on Letterboxd after I saw it was, I feel like when you see the movie, every ticket should come with a second ticket or a <laughs> joint because you yes. need one or the other. And I didn't have either. And I kind of need I need the second ticket. I need to see it again. So that's another one I bet we could have a good discussion about at some point. But. We've talked so long already. We're going to have to uh, table that for now. Let's get to Behind the Eight Ball. Let's wrap things up. We're going to rush through this a little more quickly than we normally do, but same routine as usual. Three new titles on streaming, two listener recommendations that you guys sent us, and we had a lot to choose from this time. Thank you, everyone, for sending them in. And then one random film chosen blindly by number from our My Lists on Netflix. Allison, why don't you go first? Let's sure. do, you know, as quick as we can, we'll go through them. Let's start with three new releases. Okay, first up is It's Such a Beautiful Day, which is now streaming on Netflix. We've talked about this, so I don't need did to did a whole episode, more. Listener's Other Choice Review. Episode number 32. Great. Uh, Don Hertzfeldt. I mentioned it also because Don Hertzfeldt's World of Tomorrow, his new short and his first digital film, will be at Sundance this year. Awesome. Yes. Looking forward to it. Um, new to Amazon Prime is The Dog. You know, this has been a year of some interesting docs about movies, including mm-hmm. Yoda Jodor- he's doing and life itself but uh this is one about john voidovich who is the inspiration for dog day afternoon and a giant personality and finally new to amazon prime as well is coherence it's i would place it alongside maybe the one i love as films that have a kind of sci-fi ish magical realist premise but that use it lo-fi indie sci-fi lo-fi sci-fi and use it as a way of getting into interpersonal conflicts and dramas between characters as opposed to larger explanation explorations Okay, and how about two listener recommendations? Uh, Joe from Astoria writes, In light of Sony's tragic cancellation of the interview's release, I must give an enthusiastic streaming recommendation to Kim Jong-il's magnum opus of North Korean cinema, Pulgasari, which is available to watch free on YouTube with English subtitles. Um, he, he notes that, uh, let me tell you, it was one gloriously bad, it is one gloriously bad work of bizarre, rubber-suited monster awesomeness. It's a movie that's impossible to separate from its backstory, which I won't go into right now, but is worth Googling. He says there actually are some compelling visuals in the film as far as giant rubber suit monster movies go. But the real joy of watching Pulgasari, ideally under the influence of mind-altering substances, is seeing Kim's quote-unquote vision on display. As a friend put it, he makes Tommy Wiseau look like Orson Welles. (laughs) But Tommy Wiseau never ruled a country with an iron fist, dot, 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 Mm. as far as we know. Nice. Um, So thank you, Joe. And then Betty writes, I finally saw Netflix. Uh, I finally on Netflix caught Russian Ark. Not a great movie, but if you're in awe of Birdman, I have a treat for you. A movie that's actually done in one long take. No cuts, no trickery. All film nuts should see it. And it is on Netflix. I hope you're listening, Allison. That was addressed to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. How about one random film from your my list? You gave me number 31, which is Out of the Furnace, 
which is one of those movies that was like meant to be awardsy, oh, but then right. no yeah, one like paid attention to her or liked came it all out that much. late in the year. Yeah, I think I feel like it's too late now. The, it, last year's The Gambler. <laughs> yes, like, um, but it has you know a, ca- a great cast: Christian Bale, Casey Affleck, Woody Harrelson, Zoe Saldana, Forrest Whitaker. Yes. Um, and so the guy I, who I, did um, Crazy Heart, Crazy Heart, which was a good movie, which was a good movie. So I was like, you know, I I, I missed it too. Did yeah, you, have so you seen it? You haven't seen it. I have it not yet. seen it. Yet. Neither it's of on us my have my seen list. it. So perfect thing to put on your my list. Mm. Did you see the Gambler? Speaking of the I Gambler, did. did you like the Gambler? I did not like it at all. Oh. I gr- I actively disliked the Ooh, Gambler. I kind of liked it. I did not oh, like well, it. Well, that's another one we could talk about in, in the future. Another day. Another all right. Day. Well, all right. it's your turn now, Matt. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Three new picks. Okay. First up on Amazon Prime is Lock. Tom Hardy stars alongside nobody else, basically, uh, in this drama, which is uh, written and directed by Stephen Knight. And he plays a guy who's basically taking a very important drive, the most important car ride of his entire life, essentially, and making all these phone calls. And it all plays out in this one very long scene, basically, of him driving. And it's sort of done in real time. I didn't love this movie as much as some other people. I think it works best as an exercise and as a a sort of showcase for Tom Hardy, but it's definitely worth seeing, particularly on Amazon Prime, where you don't have to pay anything extra. So that's lock on Amazon Prime. Uh, next up, one of the more interesting documentaries of the last couple years, a film called Informant from 2013, which is now available on Hulu. It's about a guy named Brandon Darby, who was a radical activist who rose to prominence in post-Katrina New Orleans and then later basically like switched allegiances and started working undercover for the FBI, kind of ratting on former colleagues. I won't say any more than that, but that is a very, very interesting documentary. It passes the Alison Wilmore test of documentary filmmaking. It's not just a civics lecture. It's a very solid film as well. That's available on Hulu. And finally, uh, a film that is not a very solid film in any way, shape, or form, but is worth watching anyway, or for that very reason, it's Alone in the Dark, newly streaming on Hulu. It's the ultimate Uva Bowl movie, the man who turned the premise of the producers into a career, into a basically a, uh, a money-making scheme, making bad movies on purpose, essentially, as a, as, a, as a tax shelter, essentially. All of his movies are bad, but Alone in the Dark is really his, his greatest or worst masterpiece. It is completely incomprehensible and silly and stupid and absolutely hilarious and uh, definitely a So Bad It's Good recommendation. That's Alone in the Dark on Hulu. All right, two listener recommendations. Listener Chris F. says, I recommend Whitey, United States of America versus James J. Bolger. Not since watching Capturing the Freedmans have I been so confused, infuriated, and it sounds bad to say, but entertained by such a maddening series of real-life events. It is relatively new to Netflix streaming, and I highly recommend it. Thank you for the awesome show. That's from Chris, and the recommendation is Whitey, a documentary available on Netflix. And we also have a recommendation from David in Sao Paulo, Brazil, all the way from Brazil. I love it. David writes, I'm not sure if you guys have discussed them on the podcast, but after all this boyhood buzz, I uh, heard of this film series from the 60s that I somehow missed until now. It's the Up series directed by Michael Apted, um, basically following uh, a bunch of seven-year-olds and then tracing their lives every seven years. So every seven years they made a new movie, seven up, 14 up, 21 up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, The most recent is 56 Up. They're streaming on Netflix uh, and is really worth a watch. Keep up the great work, says David from Brazil. And yeah, I guess that one was pointed at me. The Birdman comment was at you. The boyhood comment was at me. And uh, I'm not all the way up on, I'm not totally caught up on the ups. So I need to watch those myself. Seven Up through 56 Up streaming on Netflix. One from your My List. You gave me number 24 and that is... 
The Last Stand, directed by Kim Ji-woon and starring some guy. Hold on, let me. It's a weird name. Arnold Schwarzen Schwarzenegger. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I I I did see this movie once, and yeah, really that was th- not that's enough. simply not enough, Allison. <laughs> so it's on there. I have to I have to rewatch it. Not my favorite of the Arnold comeback movies so far, I have to say. And I was a little disappointed by it just because I love Kim Ji-woon, who is such an amazing filmmaker. And I Saw the Devil, you know, such a great movie. The Good, the Bad, the Weird, you know. And I think those are streaming on Netflix, too. I would recommend you watch those first. But, uh, yeah, it's one that I'll I'll rewatch and probably have a lot more to say about at some point in the future. Allison, let's get to our listeners' choice options. These are one of these three films or TV shows we will be talking about on our next episode. And I think we've got a very interesting batch here. Uh, a very interesting batch. I will be curious to see what wins. Our first option is streaming now on Amazon Prime. It's a, a movie from this year that got a lot of great reviews that we missed. Still catching up with movies from this year. And we're looking to see. It's called Borgman. It's directed by Alex Van War- Warmerdam. And again, it's streaming on Amazon Prime right now. It's a film that played at Cannes and Toronto, a lot of film festivals. I'll read you the plot description. A dark suburban fable exploring the nature of evil in unexpected places, Borgman follows an enigmatic vagrant who enters the lives of an upper-class family and quickly unravels their carefully curated lifestyle. And I heard a lot of great things about this movie, and I've seen some clips from it, and it looks really beautiful and weird. So that is one that I'm really looking forward to checking out. I don't no, does Amazon Prime have a my list or something like? I don't I know think, if it does. I don't know. They might. If they do, I don't use it. But if I had, if I did, that would be way at the top of my Amazon Prime Q my list thing. So that's option one, Borgman, streaming now on Amazon Prime. Okay, option two is a TV series. It's one that I mentioned on the last episode, and that we figured this is a, as good a time of, as any to make put it up there because it offers a lot to talk about. Mm. It is Black Mirror. The uh, British show, anthology show uh, created by Charlie Brooker, which is uh, kind of like a, a new technophobic, technoparanoic maybe, uh, Twilight Zone for our current era. There has actually just been a new installment that I do not think is on Netflix yet, but, so we may or may not talk about it, but it was the Christmas special uh, that is airing in the U.S. It's already aired in the U.K. It's airing in the U.S. on, I think, the 26th and stars John Hamm. But I'm a huge fan of this series, and I think that we could have some great conversations. I haven't about watched it. it. I'm, I'm really dying to check it out. I just the other day, my brother actually recommended it to me. Uh, so it's, it's something that I need to watch. So yeah, we're very excited to check it out. John Ham or no John Ham. All right, and our final option: we are dipping. We are dipping back. We are going to an older film, a controversial film. Yes, an Oscar winner. Allison, pop quiz: How many Oscars did American Beauty win? feel like a lot uh 10 no but it did win five including <laughs> best director and best picture of the it year it was nominated for everything it I was nominated like it for everything like it won five oscars yes so this is this was one of the most acclaimed and award-winning movies of its era and now only what 15 years later is considered kind of like a joke sort of widely despised and I know I haven't, I loved it at the time, I'll be honest, but I don't think I've seen it in at least a decade. So it's been a while, and I think it would be one that would be very interesting to revisit, to talk about how we felt about it at the time, to see how we feel about it now, to see what's changed. 
I, I don't honestly don't know how I would feel, but I think it would be worth having the conversation. So that's option three, American Beauty, which is streaming now on Netflix. All right. Well, which of those options would you like us to review on the next episode of Film Spotting SVU? You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com, or you can, and it's much easier, enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, December 29th at noon. And we will announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is at FilmSpottingSVU. And you will have all that week to watch the film or TV series. Uh, and then join us for our conversation on the next episode, which will be on Tuesday, January 6th. FilmSpottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive and a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. Maybe we'll also throw up the links to our top 10 lists on there as well. Yeah. So if you're looking for those, you'll find them there. The Film Spotting SVU Remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com. And we'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie review you pick. But in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And again, you can follow the show at Film Spotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we're always sharing more streaming suggestions from you guys, the SVU listeners. And remember, keep emailing us your streaming recommendations. The email address, one more time, svu at filmspottingsvu.com. For Filmspotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. And happy holidays yeah. and happy new year. Happy new year. <laughs>